From Washington, this is Talking Tax. I'm Siri Belusu. This week, we talk about the court cases involving congressional subpoenas for President Trump's financial documents and tax returns. The Supreme Court will hear oral arguments in these cases in March. Two of the cases have to do with House Committee subpoenas for records at the accounting firm Mazars USA and the Deutsche Bank. And a third case is about a New York grand jury subpoena for tax returns and other records at Mazars. Cornell Law Professor Josh Chaffetz thinks lawmakers have given up too much power to the judicial branch to enforce their subpoenas. Chaffetz talks with Bloomberg tax legal reporter Aisha Bogchi about other ways to enforce subpoenas, which he lays out in his book, Congress's Constitution. Plus, he offers predictions on what outcomes we might expect from the Supreme Court and whether we'll see those tax returns anytime soon. Here's Aisha. Hi, Josh. Thanks for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me. So here at Bloomberg Tax, we've been covering for many months congressional efforts to get at the president's tax returns and other financial documents. You've spent many years now arguing that Congress should be willing to put arresting a subpoenaed person on the table using its sergeant of arms. Why do you think that should be an option? Uh, Well, first and foremost, because going to court simply takes forever. The Supreme Court agreed to hear three of the cases uh, that have arisen out of these subpoenas. Uh, You know, the subpoenas in most of these cases were issued last summer. Uh, They'll hear the case in March. They probably won't issue a ruling until June. Um, That ruling, in turn, will probably actually wind up remanding the cases to the lower courts. So there's a pretty good uh, likelihood that um, none of these cases will wind up with any kind of resolution before the 2020 election. And given that a big part of what Congress is trying to do here is affect the politics going forward, um, it simply makes very little sense to leave things in the hands of a judiciary that uh, doesn't work on that same kind of timeline. Um, There's also a sense in which turning to the judiciary is basically just a way that Congress signals its own institutional impotence. It, it suggests that, well, you know, we can issue a subpoena and uh, the president might ignore it or the president might try to uh, convince others to ignore it. But of course, they wouldn't ignore a subpoena issued or an order issued by a court. Um, and that's just a sort of public telegraphing of, of Congress's own belief in its, in its own impotence. And I think that uh, is also problematic. Uh, one thing that people might not be aware of that I really learned from reading this, you have a chapter in your book, Congress's Constitution, that talks about the history of Congress and of actually the British Parliament before the U.S. Congress trying to enforce its own subpoenas. And in that history, you talk about the fact that Congress, I think it's both houses of Congress, the, the Senate and the House of Representatives, have... Um, a sergeant of arms that can go out and arrest people. And that was news to me. Can you talk to us Mm -hmm. a bit about about that feature of Congress? Sure. So the the sergeant is the uh, sort of um, law enforcement arm of a legislative house. Um, In some sense, their their primary job uh, historically has been uh, simply keeping order in the house. So, you know, if someone causes a disturbance in the gallery or something like that, but they can also carry out orders of the, the house that they serve uh, to enforce its subpoenas. Uh, so in the same way that courts have judicial marshals, um, uh, the, the houses of Congress have uh, sergeants at arms who they can send out. And, and 
um, and have, not in recent decades. The last time they had their sergeant-at-arms arrest someone was uh, for contempt was in the 1930s. But uh, throughout the 19th century and early 20th century, it happened with some regularity. And even on occasion, happened to executive branch officers um, who, were, who were defying uh, subpoenas. I should... I, I suppose I should emphasize, though, I also, you know, when I talk about the Houses of Congress enforcing their own subpoenas, um, using their sergeant at arms is one really aggressive way that they could do that. And, and you're absolutely right that I do want that sort of back on the table as a way that the Houses of Congress can assert themselves. But they do also have other tools they can use to assert themselves. Um, they could use the appropriations process, for example. They could zero out the salary of any executive branch official who is in contempt of Congress. Um, or start cutting budgets to things like the White House Counsel's Office if they think that resistance to congressional process is coming from that office. Um, so they have, you know, they, they have tools in addition to uh, the use of the sergeant at arms that still don't involve going through the judiciary. One thing I'm curious to ask you about, I was uh, at oral arguments in one of these cases uh, being litigated over the president's tax returns and involving a congressional subpoena. This is the case at the federal district court in Washington, D.C. with uh, Judge Trevor McFadden, and it involves uh, uh, the House Ways and Means Committee suing the Treasury Department after Treasury um, refused to comply with a subpoena demanding the president's personal and business tax returns. And the president has intervened in the case. So now you've got both Treasury and um, Donald Trump's personal private attorney litigating the the argument. And we had oral arguments in the case after the administration asked for the judge to dismiss the case. And one thing that was interesting to me that sparked thoughts about what you've written about in your book is that it was the DOJ attorney himself who was arguing that Judge, you don't need to get involved in this. This is going to make courts too political to get involved in these sorts of disputes. And by the way, Congress has alternatives on the table. It can pursue the power of the purse where it withholds funds um, that it would be appropriating for things. It can pursue these different avenues. So you don't need to get involved. And what was really interesting to me was that at the end of the day, this is a DOJ attorney, someone who probably is trying to protect the documents from uh, Congress in any way, shape, or form, potentially. Uh, and he's saying that there are these other avenues for Congress. Um, but, you know, I'd be inclined to think that the the administration is thinking that those other avenues won't be successful either, or they wouldn't um, be pushing to resist things in the courts. I, I'm curious right. about your thoughts about that. He brought up the same arguments you do, but... Um, Ultimately, he's not very sympathetic to turning over these documents. I think that's right. I think that is uh, DOJ's expectation here is that um, if they can get this thrown out of the courts, that that probably the House isn't going to use any of those tools, um, that probably it won't. Um, and, you know, some of those tools are, are, are harder to use when we're talking about um, information that's housed in the executive branch, right? So um, the sergeant-at-arms might be significantly more useful tool if we're talking about picking up contemners like Rudy Giuliani, who are private citizens, than if we're talking about trying to send the sergeant at arms and a detail of Capitol Police uh, over to uh, uh, the, the Treasury Department to try to wrest records out of the IRS. Um, that might be significantly more difficult to actually accomplish, um, which sort of takes, you know, one of those tools off the table. Um, so I can sort of uh, you know, I think that, that what the administration, at least the administration lawyers here are thinking is, well, um, if we claim that there are these other tools and then we make the judgment that 
um, Congress is less likely to use those tools, especially because it hasn't used those tools in recent years, um, we're more likely to sort of win or at least, again, run out the clock because a big part of what the administration is clearly trying to do here is just run out the clock. Hmm. Run out the clock before um, there's a potential for a Republican House of Representatives to take over or for the the 2020 election to happen? Uh, what do you mean? I think 2020 election, ultimately. I think that, um, you know, the the... the the, the White House's focus here is on uh, winning re-election. Once they win re-election, um, you know, he's not eligible to run again. At that point, politically da- damaging information becomes less of a problem for them. Um, so anything they can do to keep his tax returns under seal until, uh, you know, mid-November at the, at the, uh, at the earliest uh, is basically a win for them. One thing that I found uh, really fascinating when I read uh, your book, was uh, this description you gave of what happened during Nixon with the subpoena for records then, where you really said this wasn't just Congress ceding power over to the courts. It was also the courts really making a power grab uh, when it came to who should be arb- you know, adjudicating these fights. Can you talk about that some? What happened during Nixon that, that you think has been playing out since then? Sure. So one of the things that happened, so um, uh, during the sort of period... Um, uh, when the House Judiciary Committee was uh, considering articles of impeachment against Nixon, um, it was conducting a lot of its hearings actually behind closed doors. And the public face of it was the Senate Select Committee uh, that was conducting sort of these open investigations. And when knowledge of the Nixon tapes uh, becomes public, the Senate Select Committee says, well, we want to get our hands on those tapes. Um, and the uh, um, uh, Nixon uh, administration refuses to turn them over. The Senate Select Committee goes to court, and this is the first time. So we're all, you know, the 1970s is the first time that Congress actually goes to court in an information dispute with the executive branch. Previous times, uh, Congress had you know enforced its will using its own uh, procedures, and then maybe sometimes the target of that enforcement had gone into court. So when Congress had arrested someone, um, that person might go to court seeking a writ of habeas corpus to to be freed from congressional captivity. Uh, But uh, the 1970s is the first time Congress goes to the the courts. And what the courts say is, well, you know, it turns out that a federal grand jury already has those tapes. And we think that turning them over to the Senate Select Committee might interfere with the ongoing grand jury proceedings. So we are not going to order the Nixon administration to turn them over to you. Then when the Supreme, so that's, that's the Senate Select Committee case before the DC Circuit Court of Appeals. Then not that long after, when the Supreme Court orders those same tapes turned over to uh, the grand jury, to, to the, um, uh, the special uh, prosecutor there, that's what sort of prompts Nixon's resignation. And so the combined effect of those two rulings is that the courts sort of make judicial process into the hero there and cut Congress out of the picture, right? If the rulings had come out the other way, right, that is to say, if the tapes had been turned over to the Senate Select Committee, it would have been through publicly uh, uh, televised Senate hearings that the nation sort of heard those tapes and learned about those tapes. And that would have made Congress out to be the hero. Um, But I think you're right. The courts sort of made a series of decisions that result in their being the hero of this story. Um, But it's not just the courts alone, right? It's the fact that the Senate chose to go through the courts, right? The Senate was the one that uh, invoked judicial procedure there. Um, So 
there was a sense in which they voluntarily ceded that power to the courts, and the courts picked it up and ran with it. A lot of people might say that courts are exactly the place where these disputes should be decided, that courts are supposed to be neutral, that there are structural features to the judicial branch, uh, for example, lifetime tenure for judges and a culture of just staying out of politics that makes them a more appropriate arbiter than the more political, the seemingly more pro- political branches, the executive and the legislative branch. What do you say to that? Why shouldn't courts be deciding these disputes? Well, courts. Have, one thing that's worth emphasizing is courts uh, and judges have gone out of their way to reinforce this myth that the judiciary is apolitical, impartial. You know, you see someone like John Roberts saying there are no Obama judges or Trump judges. Um, we know that's not true, right? We can we can look at rulings uh, that are issued by judges appointed by presidents of different parties and see systematic differences in those rulings. Um, we know that they are political in the sort of deepest sense, which is to say that their rulings deeply impact the way that we live with one another in society. Um, so they have there are partisan implications to their decisions. There are um, their decisions are at least predictable on partisan grounds, even if not determined by partisanship. Um, and uh, uh, and there's these rulings have you know really deep important systematic impacts for the rest of us. So. Um, I think the reason that we should be troubled that more and more policy gets outsourced to the judiciary is simply that uh, we don't, uh, you know, we, we have sort of say on the front end, right, um, in the sense that they're uh, nominated by presidents that are elected and, and confirmed by senates that are elected. But then after that, they can be on the court for 30, 40 years, um, and we really have no say on the back end. Um, you know, how uh, Americans think about policy and about their public life can have completely moved on. And yet um, the the judges are still the people who were appointed, uh, you know, several political coalitions earlier. I'm curious to hear your thoughts. There are three cases at the Supreme Court right now that will be argued in March 2020 over the president's tax returns or other financial documents. The president actually lost those cases at the lower appellate courts, but now the Supreme Court is going to weigh in. Do you have any thoughts about how these cases are likely to go? I think most likely um, the Supreme Court will uh, side, will will basically rule um, more or less against the president. I don't think there are five uh, votes there for the kind of really expansive rulings that we saw, for example, in uh, Judge Rao's dissent in the D.C. Circuit in the Mazars case. Um, But I think, you know, if I had to guess, I think what they'll probably do is um, announce sort of a a set of principles governing executive privilege or even governing sort of uh, some kind of personal presidential privilege in these cases. And then they'll remand it back to the lower courts. uh, and the and and again, I think this will wind up being most likely a a win for uh, for the Trump administration on the on the issue that it cares most about, which is on the issue of timing. Um, because if it hears these cases in March, it's issuing a, a ruling in June at the you know probably very end of June. Um, and if that ruling involves a remand, it's hard to imagine getting to a final judgment uh, before uh, you know by by early November. Hmm. Interesting. So it's as if the formal position that the court comes out on, that'll be the law going forward, goes against the Trump administration. But given the timing dynamics to, to 
these fights, um, it could actually be good for the administration, even if it doesn't look good on the books to history. Exactly. And and you can see why that would be tremendously appealing to someone like John Roberts, right, who gets to say, see, uh, you know, there aren't Republican and Democratic judges because we actually ruled against the president here um, and his tax returns will come out. You know, um, uh, maybe they won't come out in time for the election, but, you know, we are the Supreme Court. We don't really think about elections. Um, so it allows him to sort of project this um, this air of of neutrality, of detachment from electoral politics, while simultaneously protecting a president of his party uh, from the thing that that president is most worried about, which is these tax returns coming out before the election. Mm. What do you think John Roberts would say? I'm just trying to imagine getting uh, the other side in on this. Uh, what would he say if he heard you say what you just said? I think he, he would say what he's sort of continuously said, which is we just don't think that way, right? That's, um, you know, we don't think in partisan terms, um, we have a longer time frame than that. Uh, we, um, you know, we, we are thinking about the law uh, and about law development when we decide these cases. We're, we're really just not thinking in terms of the electoral calendar. And you're skeptical either that that's true or that, you know, regardless that that's how what manifests uh, in terms of the court's actions and the effect that the court's actions have. Exactly. Yeah, I, I um you know, I, I think you don't even have to think that they are explicitly thinking in terms of the um, uh, of the electoral calendar, although I think clearly they are. You don't get to be a justice on the Supreme Court without being fairly politically savvy, fairly politically connected, fairly tied into a, uh, a partisan infrastructure. Uh, so the idea that they're actually not thinking about the electoral calendar strikes me as implausible. But even if they're not, the fact that they work on the timeframes that they work on explains the strategic choices that um, uh, that the White House is making, right? It explains why the White House wants these things uh, uh, in, in sort of tied up in judicial proceedings for as long as possible. And uh, just to be clear, uh, one option that the court had is it, you know, if it was going to rule against the administration, it could have just let these lower appellate court decisions stand and not taken the cases and uh, denied cert, cert, that's what it would be called. Um, and you seem to think that they are ultimately going to let those decisions stand, but that they have some other motivation in wanting to take the cases, something that they want to declare with them. Uh, can you talk about that? Right. So I think, um, uh, you know, and, and the fact that they right could have chosen not to take the cases at all um, also goes to this uh, this question of timing. Right. If they had denied cert, then the, the Court of Appeals decisions would have been uh, the final decisions and, and the, the tax returns, you know, the, the uh, subpoena compliance would have become mandatory for the for Mazars, for uh, Deutsche Bank, etc. Um, so they, by taking the case, they, the Supreme Court has significantly lengthened the timeline. Um, and I think, you know, again, what John Roberts would say is, well, these are sort of really important cases, the Supreme Court should weigh in and, um, you know, uh, not only because the Supreme Court's prestige outweighs that of the lower courts, um, but also perhaps because uh, there's some opportunity for developing the law in this area. Um, the way I'm inclined to see it is that um, if it comes out the way I expect it to, uh, it will be another one of these moments where the court sort of is able to build its own prestige uh, by uh, having a majority that sort of, you know, a, a, a majority of a court that is Republican dominated, nevertheless standing up to a Republican president, while at the same time not actually harming that Republican president, most likely. Um, so it's, it, it, it's, a, it's, a, 
it's set up to allow the judiciary to accomplish a number of its goals, or at least the, the Republican majority on the Supreme Court to accomplish a number of its goals simultaneously. Which gets back to your argument that the that maybe the judicial branch has been accruing more and more power over time at the expense of the legislative branch. Exactly. And this this is a way that it does it, much like the Nixon cases uh, are a way that it does it. Right? It, it sort of thinks uh, strategically about um, sort of how it can position itself vis-a-vis the other branches, right? How it can arrange to basically come out looking heroic, looking detached, looking neutral. Um, uh, and so, you know, in Nixon, it accomplishes that both by making sure that it's ultimately the judiciary that causes Nixon's downfall by withholding these tapes from the, the Senate Select Committee. Um, and it accomplishes that in Nixon by being unanimous. Now, I'm not sure it'll be unanimous here, but the fact that it's a Republican-dominated court uh, in a highly polarized era that might nevertheless rule against Trump, uh, at least on paper, will make it come out uh, sort of looking uh, looking heroic. And can you talk some about what we can expect in terms of whether, you know, if the decision does go against the administration, whether we can expect these documents to become public? A couple of the cases involve House subpoenas. One case involves a New York grand jury subpoena. What would happen to these documents, no matter when a decision comes out, um, if it ultimately does go against the administration? I would expect the documents to become public uh, pretty quickly. Um, uh, certainly, Democrats in, um, uh, in, in the House have an incentive to release these documents, at least assuming that they show um, uh, sort of things that are, are unattractive to the Trump administration. Uh, which I, I assume they will, or they wouldn't have fought so hard to keep them secret. Um, so I think it's highly likely that they will be either sort of uh, uh, formally released by vote of the committee, or if not, um, uh, then leaked pretty quickly. Thanks, Josh, for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's all for this week's episode. For more tax and accounting news, visit news.bloombergtax.com. And you can follow us at Tax on Twitter. From Washington, I'm Siri Belusu. Thanks for listening. You probably have a lot of questions about the environment. Well, so do we. Are we talking like radioactive chemicals? Is this becoming sort of irrelevant if the U.S. doesn't participate in this? What's going on here? How far did the Trump administration go? And is mining really better? down where it's wetter, climate change, chemicals, water pollution, you name it. If it's in the environment, we're talking about it. Listen to Bloomberg Environment's official podcast, Parts Per Billion, wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, get up-to-the-minute reporting at our website, news.bloombergenvironment.com.